We light this chalice to remind ourselves of the purposes, clear and hidden, of our community today and this week. A commitment to our spiritual growth, to witness the stories of others, to honor the divine spark within all. May we feel here a sacred presence as we work to make this world holy. Good morning. I am not Catherine. As you may well have guessed. I am Catherine's husband, Cody. She has generously invited me to start uh, today's proceedings with the intention, I think anyway, to warm you up before, (laughs) before the star attraction. She's the main, then I'm the starter. And our Uh, Children's story is read by Kate, uh, who I think we can all describe as (laughs) Namuz-Bush. I hope that in your time here this morning, you will feel satisfied in the sense of being satiated and not quibble over the bill. (laughs) We live in Manchester, which lacks a Michelin-starred restaurant, so your wallet is safe. We begin today's journey with a reading, a reading itself of a journey. The Reverend Carl Scoville gave a five-minute address once a week on the radio for 20 years. This is from that program, and it's entitled, Take a Hike. When I've been under pressure, and the pressure is getting to me, I know it's time to get out my boots and my pack and a bag of raisins and drive my old Volvo north to the land of the great spirit and the black flies and the hundred trails and the logging roads that snake their secret ways through the thick green woods up the flanks of the white mountains. I need to head for a summit where the wind and the light and the view are waiting to welcome the lonely walker who has no other purpose than to be there for an hour or two. It was cloudy and threatening when I left at six one morning for such a hike, and rain was promised. I was feeling about as mean as a preacher can feel when he's not been getting as well as giving. I stopped at the Concord Hojo's for a cup of coffee and glanced through the guidebook. Well, I thought, I'll climb Hancock. I haven't been there for 14 years, and it's only 10 miles up and back. I drove up Route 93, turned east on the Concangmigas Highway, and after a couple of misses found the trailhead laced up my boots and hoisted my pack and headed into the dark green wonderland of woods and ferns and mist and a moistness you can almost taste. The last time I climbed Hancock, I had one thing in my mind, to get to the top as fast as I can. 
At that point in my life, I was bent on climbing the 47 mountains over 4,000 feet in New Hampshire, and Hancock was number 28 on that list. I don't think I saw a thing on that trip. It wasn't a hike. It was a blitz. Up and down, in and out. That's all I cared about. <coughs> this trip was different. I sauntered up the trail, not caring if I reached the top or not. I looked at the thousand shades of green in leaf and moss. I drank from streams, indifferent to the perils of Jardia, and noted good camping sites. I admired the great rocks dropped in the valley by glaciers centuries before. I munched on my sandwich and raisins and sang little chants to the pebbles on the path and listened to the myriad voices in my mind. And I realized that I wasn't just hiking. I was meditating. I wasn't just walking up a mountain. I was walking into my mind into that inner world that we all lose touch with when we get too busy attending to people and work. Just as in sleep, where we must dream to stay sane, so in waking we must stay in touch with that world of intuition and fantasy that we call the unconscious. The Church thinks of the unconscious as the realm of the Holy Spirit. We all must do this, some by reading novels, some by walking on the seashore, some by meditating, some by gardening, some by listening to music, some by going to art galleries, some by daydreaming, some by talking to psychotherapists, some by painting, some by playing. We all need to be in touch with the world of myth and image, story, mood, and feeling. That world where God speaks to us not in the simple language of fact and morality, but in the strange and intricate tongue of vision, emotion, and narrative. This world, too, is divine and needs as much attention from us as the world of numbers, theorems, and headlines. Where there is no vision, the people perish, says Holy Scripture. Where people lose touch with that world of inner truth, they die from violence of unchecked reason. Do not hesitate to take your journey into that strange world in which lies your salvation. God still meets us in strange places, and the joy God offers us, we must not deny. Carl Scovell. And I now invite Kate to come forward with our story today, Rosie Revere, engineer. <laughs> Rosie Revere, engineer. This is the story of Rosie Revere, who dreamed 
of becoming a great engineer. In Lila Grease classroom at Blue River Creek, young Rosie sat shyly, not daring to speak. But when no one saw her, she peeked in the trash for treasures to add to her engineer's stash. And late, late at night, Rosie rolled up her sleeves and built in her hideaway under the eaves. Alone in her attic, the moon high above, dear Rosie made gadgets and gizmos she loved. And when she grew sleepy, she hid her machines far under the bed where they'd never be seen. When Rosie was young, she'd not been so shy. She worked with her hair swooping over one eye and made fine inventions for uncles and aunts, a hot dog dispenser and helium pumps. <laughs> that would have rhymed with aunts, but I'm from Norfolk. <laughs> Actually, I'm from Norfolk. I've just moved to Lancashire. I no longer have any idea how to say the word aunt. The uncle she loved most was zookeeper Fred. She made him a hat to keep snakes off his head. <laughs> From parts of a fan and some cheddar cheese spray, which everyone knows keeps the pythons away. <laughs> and when it was finished, young Rosie was proud. But Fred slapped his knee and he chuckled out loud. He laughed till he wheezed and his eyes filled with tears, all to the horror of Rosie Revere, who stood there embarrassed, perplexed, and dismayed. She looked at the cheese hat and then looked away. I love it, Fred hooted. Oh, truly I do. But Rosie Revere knew it could not be true. She stuck the cheese hat on the back of her shelf and after that day kept her dreams to herself. Aww. You lot don't seem bothered. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it went. <laughs> until one autumn day her oldest relation showed up for a stay. Her great-great-aunt Rose was a true dynamo who'd worked building airplanes a long time ago. She told Rosie tales of the things she had done and gold she had checked off her list one by one. She gave a sad smile as she looked to the sky. The only thrill left on my list is to fly. But time never lingers as long as it seems. I'll chalk that one up to an old lady's dreams. That night, Rosie lay wide-eyed in bed, a daring idea creeping into her head. Could she build a gizmo to help her aunt fly? She looked at the cheese hat and said, no, not I. <laughs> but questions are tricky and some hold on tight and this one kept Rosie awake through the night so when dawn approached and, and red streaks lit the sky young Rosie knew just how to make her aunt fly she worked and she worked till the day was half gone 
then hauled her cheese copter out onto the lawn <laughs> to give her invention a test just to see the ridiculous flop it would turn out to be. Oh, try reading this upside down. <laughs> Strapped into the cockpit, she flipped on the switch. The helio cheese copter sputtered and twitched. It floated a moment and whirled round and round, then froze for a heartbeat and crashed to the ground. <laughs> then Rosie heard laughter and turned round to see the old woman laughing and slapping her knee. She laughed till she wheezed and her eyes filled with tears all to the horror of Rosie Revere, who thought, oh no, never, not ever again will I try to build something to sputter or spin or build with a lever, a switch or a gear, and never will I be a great engineer. Oh. It's tragic, isn't it? <laughs> she turned round to leave, but then great-great-aunt Rose grabbed hold of young Rosie and pulled her in close and hugged her and kissed her and started to cry. You did it! Hooray! It's the perfect first try. This great flop is over. It's time for the next. Young Rosie was baffled, embarrassed, perplexed. I failed, said dear Rosie. It's just made of trash. Yes. Oh, didn't you see it? The cheese copter crashed. Yeah, said her great aunt. It crashed. That is true. But first, it did just what it needed to do. Before it crashed, Rosie, before that, it flew. Your brilliant first flop was a raging success. Come on, let's get busy and on to the next. She handed a notebook to Rosie Revere, who smiled at her aunt as it all became clear. Life might have its failures, but this was not it. The only true failure can come if you quit. <laughs> they worked till the sun sneaked away to its bed. Aunt Rose tied her headscarf around Rosie's head and sent her to sleep with a smile ear to ear to dream the bold dreams of a great engineer. At Blue River Creek, all the kids in grade two build gizmos and gadgets and doohickeys too. With each perfect failure, they all stand and cheer, but not quite as proudly as Rosie Revere. <laughs> thank you, Kate. And thank you to the congregation who have a wonderful capacity for uh, displaying humor and laughter, um, sadness and sorrow, and, and that sort of profound, ooh. <laughs> 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 now, we would, we um, don't want you to leave yet because we have just a little bit of a prayer and then uh, a wonderful hymn that we think you'll enjoy just as much as the rest of the congregation. So let us now gather into a time of prayer. <coughs> Holy flame, as we embark on this challenging and joyful journey, may we be filled with courage. Encourage us to tell our stories, to fill our hearts with passion 
to see our lives with merit and worthy to be shared. May we embrace ourselves in a world that often diminishes our accomplishments, whose tide sometimes pushes us back. Encourage us to listen, to fill our hearts with compassion. Pain is often easy to inflict, and scars may last for a long time. Let us tend to each other's wounds and provide a space where another's soul is enveloped in love. For often the storm rages and those beside us risk being swept away. Encourage us to enliven those who are dispirited, for whom life has provided little pleasure, for whom the seas lie still and stagnant. And when we are at our low ebb, may we know the warmth of community. We join here to encourage, enflame, enquire, empathize, enliven, instill, embody, empower, embrace, to enjoy our paths along which we carry forward together this day. May we know it now. Let us enter into a short period of silence for those personal prayers that lay in your hearts and minds, that they may be given voice as well. Amen.
We come now to our first hymn in the Purple Book, number 168. Think of a world without any animals you will have to share with your neighbor. That is one of the great joys uh, in limited numbers of books. Hymn number one. 168 in the Purple Book. Think of a world without any animals. First verse with music. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you, Kate and Cody, and good morning. Um, just a quote to start you off. So, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> so, these words are attributed to American baseball player Yogi Berra, and there are plenty of gems like that where that came from. So, um, as soon as I agreed to give this talk, I rapidly went in search of ideas on the theme of paths and roads and journeys and joys with which to inspire the masses. This opening quote, this yogiism, offered little in the way of comfort or creative spark, although it stood as a stark reminder of my flair for indecisiveness. <laughs> I proceeded to flip from idea to idea, ripping page after page from the typewriter as I sat and stared at this fork in the road. I am often guilty of taking steps down one path, but wondering what I may have missed out on by abandoning the other. Social media is awash with sound bites and memes offering advice by which we should live our lives. But the more we delve into these words of wisdom, the less true meaning they seem to hold. So I realised a string of cliched and saccharine phrases was not what I was looking for. Did you really want to be bombarded with this idea of constantly overflowing and uncontrollable joy in the face of adversity? And then it's all about positive mental attitude. I thought not. And anyway, <laughs> and anyway, this simply wouldn't have been true for me. Sometimes growing up and adulting are just hard. Having attended summer school for the first time two years ago and witnessing the clever, witty and insightful talks given by Cody and his colleagues, I immediately started holding myself up against this benchmark and wondering how on earth I could compete with this. What on earth could I have to say that would be engaging, funny and moving? So I turned to my most reliable resource, Cody. <laughs> Maybe he could write this thing and nobody need know. <laughs> I mean, it's not like he had much else to occupy his time working one morning a week as a full-time minister. <laughs> but then it was quickly pointed out to me that I would caught out from the start, as you all realised I was not a young boy growing up in the American Midwest. <laughs> and he liked to visit junkyards for his birthday treats. <laughs> so what could I talk about? I'm not a minister, and trying to emulate this would have seemed awkward and disingenuous. And as much as I am embarrassed to admit it, I'm not really a deep reader. I'm more of a literary grazer, always wanting to absorb information from this book and that book, but rarely make it to the last page. <laughs> I have been encouraging myself to go more with my gut and take the path that just feels right. And it suddenly felt right and genuine to simply talk about myself. Without wishing to come across as big-headed, it felt appropriate to talk about my path with all its shake-ups, wake-ups and realisations. Even this rambling introduction gives you a little window into the workings of my mind. <laughs> it's so often felt like I have been walking a path with ever-shifting landmarks without any kind of map or compass, and I started to reflect on how I had negotiated my travels thus far. As life threw another challenge and another hurdle and just one more thing in the road, had I managed to get to this point and make myself vulnerable to joy as I went? This remains to be seen. The, this process of putting my thoughts to paper has, after a fashion, been quite therapeutic for me. 
and I feel that I am in a safe place among friends to share them with. So here we are. My approach is largely autobiographical, as I walk you through the topography of my own experiences and emotions, with unashamed references to Columbo thrown in for good measure. <laughs> Anyone who follows us on social media will know that Sunday afternoon is Columbo afternoon <laughs> in Coin Household every week. I remember my childhood with great fondness. I am the eldest of two siblings, having been joined my, by my younger sister, Laura, at the age of three and a half. <coughs> I was present at her birth, and I hold this in my mind as my first real memory. I was protective as a big sister and generally quite serious in nature, but aware of what I liked doing and confident as a primary school child. I had my opinions and I didn't mind expressing them in school <coughs> debates. I certainly had a competitive mindset and thanks to the influence of my mum and dad, recall having quite a feminist streak from an early age. A great deal of these earlier years were spent running around in my grandparents' back garden, filling in holes in the vegetable garden using concrete that was often mixed by my granddad to make the most hideous garden gnomes you've ever seen. <laughs> these contorted creatures, often missing noses and sitting atop half-formed toadstools, were strewn everywhere around the garden. And if you were lucky, in your back garden as a Christmas gift, they were definitely made for back gardens. They had a clown-like quality and could quite easily have given a young child nightmares. But they kind of became my friends for tea parties and chats. This backyard was a meeting point for many of the local children, so we always had someone to play with, and the house was often a hive of activity for fundraising events and neighbours popping in. When we were hungry, we could rely on Grandma to ply us with half-cooked frozen pies and a lot of cake. My Grandma's own mealtimes often made up of a tray of cream cakes and a box of Rennies for, for the dessert. <laughs> it's a healthy, balanced diet. If anywhere was filled with hazards for young children, it was this home. As Grandad was as safe with an electrical screwdriver as he was with concrete. But we survived and we thrived and we were loved. I always look forward to camping holidays in France each summer with my family, and I clearly recall dragging my dad into cool churches for shade. Right from my earliest memories, church buildings were a place of peace, calm and coolness for me. And even Cody now can be churched out by me dragging him from building <laughs> to building. Although the theologies at any of the churches we dipped in and out of as a child didn't sit well with me, I still felt drawn to religious buildings, as if they were something I needed. It is hard to know whether I thought of all this with an understanding of happiness or joy. I just was, but looking back at it through adult eyes, it certainly gives me those feelings now. I enjoyed being a big sister, felt important helping out in the little organic food co-op my parents were part of, and threw myself into anything I engaged with. My time at high school, however, I look back on through an entirely different lens. My grandma Bib, short for Wilhelmina, died when I was 11, and my granddad moved away. In my mind, this marks a shift from the happiness of primary school to the weighty years of Lim High School. 
Up until this point, most of my closest friends had been boys where I felt I fit in best. This became trickier and trickier as I grew up, and high school was a place where I felt off balance, on the outside, and unable to relate to anyone. I gradually became more serious and inward facing, keeping more and more emotions to myself and focusing wholeheartedly on my work. Emotions, all emotions, became something I rolled up into a tight ball and pushed them down into my stomach. I felt less vulnerable against the words of taunting peers if I gave nothing away. But this cold, hard exterior was a cover-up for the extreme sensitivity that lay, be lay beneath the surface. At this point, I was very much aware that just being myself came with strong emotions. And the overriding feelings were of loneliness and disconnection. Towards my GCSE years, competing in sport was replaced by music. And I think it was here that I found my comfort. Life started to feel more and more painful in my stomach. Genuinely painful. And I became sicker and sicker losing weight, not eating, and having to take a break from A-levels. Family and friends started to worry that I did not want to eat as I turned to skin and bone, but it was simply that I couldn't eat. It hurt that much, and I could no longer make it up the stairs or out of bed. All of this coincided with a very unhealthy first relationship, and it was some time before I plucked up the courage to seek medical help. I was quickly rushed through to hospital and luckily received a diagnosis of Crohn's disease very quickly. Treatment with steroids was prescribed and I started to eat again. Take, uh, not, not having been aware of the condition before this point, I thought this was it. Take the pills, get better, go back to school. But it didn't work like that. I battled on with A-levels through periods of painful illness and steroid-induced remission. It was a huge challenge coming to terms with chronic illness in the hostile environment of high school. Music was my closest companion through all this, and I spent every moment I could picking up my flute, composing and studying for music history exams. Thank goodness for its presence. It was quite simply a lifesaver. It provided me with a sense of calm, resilience and focus, a way to communicate emotions when everything around me was beyond my control. <sighs> Any moments of joy came from psychologically shutting myself away and being with music. This rapidly oscillating peaks and troughs in my physical health became the new norm, and I came to accept that a couple of weeks of relatively good health would be followed by a few weeks of pain, sickness and bed rest. New medications brought with them a list of exhausting side effects, but I came to not hate it and to work with what I had. I would say that I learnt to not fear Crohn's and to respect it as something I had to be strong living alongside. In a way, it helped, me, helped remind me of the determined, stubborn and focused Catherine of early childhood. Making the decision to go to university as I learnt to negotiate the world within the relative constraints of chronic illness was a tough one. I knew I had to choose somewhere that felt comfortable, sympathetic and open to my needs. And after receiving my offers, I toured around Durham, York, Bangor, Liverpool and Manchester. 
instantly falling in love with Liverpool. It was not what I had anticipated at all, but both the city and the music department, housed within the walls of a beautiful, slightly run-down Georgian terrace, felt like home. This turned out to be one of the most bolstering and life-changing decisions I could have made, and I went with my gut. I abandoned league tables and the institutions I thought would look most impressive on paper, and I voted with my heart. I was now under the care of an extremely compassionate consultant, Dr Robinson, and my university supervisor, Robert, became someone I could go to for support, reassurance and unparalleled musical knowledge and experience. We remain firm friends now. It was during my degree studies that I fell madly in love with the music of Edward Elgar. We heard his introduction in Allegro as we came in. Both the sensitivity of Elgar as a human being, in the way that he was deeply affected by personal and world events, and the exquisiteness of his music resonated with me. His friend, uh, William H. Reed, wrote, To try to sum up the characteristics of Elgar as a musician without reference to his completeness as a man is impossible. His subjects were so varied and his art so versatile. He trod all musical paths that led to artistic ends, whether this should end in a small piece of violin and piano, a national patriotic song, or a symphony or oratorio. One thing is common to all his works, great or small, and that is the stamp of a powerful personality, patent to anyone who listens to a few bars taken anywhere at random from any of his works. And that's from a book called Elgar As I Knew Him. It's an absolutely fantastic book. I personally found his presence in his music very profound and hugely reassuring. I spent time in the archives of the British Library examining his handwritten sketches and felt deeply connected to him. I think I really started to come into my own at university and the fact that I had to use my time wisely, make hay when the sun was shining, made me all the more passionate about what I was doing. I was amongst peers who shared the same love of music and I felt comfortable coming out of my shell. It was okay to love Elgar. <laughs> I do, however, look back and realise that as I started to achieve these goals uh, that I set for myself, I continued to push myself harder and harder, setting the bar ever higher. The first step was passing the first year, then only being happy with a first for my second year, and finally perceiving anything other than graduating top of my year as a failure. I gave myself no room for error, and like dear little Rosie Revere, any setback felt like the ultimate failure. Do not get me wrong, reaching each of these goals and graduating remains one of my proudest and happiest moments. But I started to uh, feed the achievement centres of my brain so profusely through this mindset of absolute perfectionism that I would now never be satisfied with anything less than immaculate work flawless handwriting and complete control over the outcome of everything I set my mind to. It was as if excelling intellectually and academically made, my, uh, made up for my physical weaknesses. I failed to stop simply to appreciate what was 
And I think Kristen Neff, in her book Self-Compassion, expresses very eloquently what, I start, what had started to happen and how I came to see myself. The positive aspect of perfectionism has to do with the determination to do your best. Striving to achieve and setting high standards for yourself can be productive and healthy trait. But when your entire sense of self-worth is based on being productive and successful, when failure is simply not allowed, then the striving to achieve becomes tyrannical and counterproductive. This need to achieve started to define who I was, and I naively thought it was what made me stand out, likeable, and most of all, happy. I wasn't right, of course, because this was completely unsustainable. And when health really started to get the better of me, derailing Cambridge University plans, I had to take stock. Abandoning this dream took a long time to come to terms with, even though I recognised it would not have been healthy for me. I had to turn my focus to preparing mentally for surgery, and in 2006 underwent a major operation to remove the diseased part of my gut. Recovery from surgery was hard, and I struggled with the hospital environment, everything feeling out of my control in the hands of complete strangers. But the procedure was a huge success, and I was taken off all medications. It was a miracle, really, and I was able to push to the back of my mind difficult experiences I faced in hospital. But something happened that I hadn't anticipated. I found I was neither prepared for nor equipped for complete remission. <coughs> Just being normal. In my hell-bent quest to not be defined by suffering with Crohn's, I had come to define myself by fighting against it. It was that presence that proved to me I was tough and Crohn's had become like a slightly abusive friend that you can neither live with nor live without. If I was now normal, um, the only way I could see forward to set was to set the bar even higher for myself. And I became so judgmental of every move I made that it rapidly became overwhelming and almost paralysing. This could only lead to burnout. It seemed serendipitous then that I should meet Cody at this point. <laughs> <laughs> It is hard not to interpret events as destiny when the right person arrives at just the right time. The first time we met at an orchestral rehearsal, I was greeted with the warmest smile and a simple, how are you? It was all I needed, and I was pretty hooked from then on. <laughs> and I have to add here, I promise Cody did not write this. <laughs> Things just seemed to fall into place and we were getting to know each other when my dad suffered a serious stroke. Not the most ideal circumstances for meeting future in-laws. But he stuck around, no questions, and I'm so happy that he did. He brought a lot of joy to the whole family at a really difficult time. I must admit there was something a little intimidating about meeting such a competent musician and opening myself up to his love for new experiences exploration and nosing around the big city. He had this ability to go with the flow, see what happens and thrive on spontaneity. 
These were all foreign concepts to me as a self-confessed control freak. <laughs> he kept bringing me back from myself, taking me to quirky corners of Manchester, showing me around his region of the US and pushing my rigid boundaries. And my world became so much bigger and full of unexpected joys. He always said, there is something beautiful about any place if you just look. This is not to say that he doesn't expect a painful level of perfectionism from himself, <laughs> because we're always the worst at taking our own advice. So I suppose this is where I have to step up and remind him of his own words. <laughs> Learning to walk with another person so closely can be difficult at times, but with compromise and empathy, we come, become much more aware of the world around us and perhaps become a bit more forgiving of ourselves. After all, who needs or wants to be surrounded by people who get everything right all of the time? <laughs> we make mistakes and that's okay. It felt refreshing to be able to work and support us through Cody's study and a gruelling immigration process. Illness at this point seemed like a distant memory. We're just now going to take a five to ten minutes uh, break to just quietly be. You can stretch, sit, hug, look out of the window, cry, smile, listen, clap with the recorded audience, whatever feels right and comfortable. You will hear a recording of two pieces from Madame Butterfly, performed by Cody on Euphonium when he was at Eastman School of Music. It seems very appropriate that euphonium means good or beautiful sound. When the music finishes, please just return mindfully and peacefully to your seats.
And you can see part of the reason why I was hooked from the beginning. <laughs> Listening to the euphonium reminds me that it's possible to feel sadness, hope and joy all at the same time. And it always brings a tear to my eye. Thank you, Cody. Having spent four years living pretty healthily after my surgery, it's no surprise that I experienced a, le a level of denial when symptoms returned. I treated recurring stomach pains as sickness and just some stomach bug, and I ignored it, and I ignored it. I lined my shelves with every book I could find on staying well through diet, exercise, and wholesome living. 
Looking back, it is frightening to know just how many potential cures and diets with little scientific backing are sold to people who are frightened, vulnerable, and desperately seeking an answer. Only this, this week, there has been a great deal of upset expressed on one of the Crohn's support forums about a Facebook meme from someone calling himself the medical medium, stating that bananas will reverse your Crohn's disease. And if only we could eat bananas. <laughs> In my desperation to stay out of hospital and away from the idea that the Crohn's was back, I allowed myself to get really, really sick. The devastation that this caused to Cody and my family as they dragged me into hospital, I still can't quite comprehend. And the guilt was overwhelming. It took a long time to physically recover from this and I had to start injecting end-of-the-line chemo-type drugs in order to survive. And something else changed. I was now absolutely terrified of my illness. It lurked in the corner as a constant threat to life, to happiness and to my family. And as I saw it, I had failed at being strong through sickness and I had also failed at staying well. I only ever gave myself two options. Either I was perfect or I was completely worthless. I felt myself draining away and all that was left was an anxious shell. This altered relationship with my physical self and the decline in my mental state was shattering. Whereas previously I had seen my chronic condition as Catherine and Catherine as two separate entities, I now pictured the mental and the physical completely bound together. My mental health was shaped by my physical state and I simply couldn't see the wood for the trees. All the colour seemed to drain out of everything and I struggled to simply be with myself when Cody was away studying in Oxford. This eventually led to complete mental dis disintegration and I had to take a long period away from work to relearn just how to be. At this point, I didn't even feel I had music to fall back on because my job teaching music in schools had gradually sapped the joy from it. Not that I didn't love teaching, because I did, but the school environment was becoming less and less open to music education, treating it more and more like an inconvenient waste of time. I received excellent help from clinical health psychology to make sense of my experiences to learn to cope with the possibility I may need more hospital treatment and to accept the moment as it stood now. Having always focused on my goals and what was ahead of me, I rarely noticed what was at the side of the road, in the present, without, without direct instruction from those around me. I was taught about mindful practices and gratitude diaries by my psychologist. And these things really do take practice. The pathways in our brains are like a patch of grass and it's only by walking over and over the same patch of grass that we start to make a clear path and the journey from A to B becomes more automatic. The pathways to feeling of feelings of anxiety and achievement had become very well worn in my brain, but I had little consistent experience of travelling the road to joy and contentment. Our brains always take the path of least resistance in times of stress 
and I was having to learn how to feel a whole host of relatively unfamiliar emotions and accept them without judgment. Everything from joy to anger, optimism to disappointment. Picturing emotions like the weather passing over and moving on was particularly helpful and I could feel a strength returning in the pit of my stomach. It all sounds so simple, but seeing these small changes in myself was perhaps one of my greatest achievements. I had to be careful not to get carried away with self-help books for this and that, because there is a publication for everything. <laughs> how to live in the moment, how to plan for the future, living with chaos, living as a minimalist, appreciating the complexity of life, appreciating the simplicity in life. <laughs> you name it, there's a book for it. But I returned to, returned to work feeling all better now. My physical health <coughs> continued to be a thorn in my side though, and I did eventually have to admit defeat and give up work. A bout of shingles followed by a diagnosis of Addison's disease left me with little choice. Here I insert a little scientific segment to explain what this means. Addison's disease is a very rare condition and I am extremely lucky that it was caught. My adrenal glands had failed on me and I no longer produced cortisol, one of the body's natural steroids. It is likely that you've come across adrenal fatigue, which is thought to come about as a result of stressful living. But this is different. Addison's is almost complete shutdown. Cortisol gets a bad press, and if you type it into Dr. Google, you'll, you'll be confronted by a swathe of articles, cortisol, public enemy number one, and cure your cortisol addiction. This can sometimes make it difficult for Addison's patients to get the medication they need, because doctors unfamiliar with the condition think cortisol equals bad. Certainly in excessive amounts over long periods, it can cause unwanted changes to organs, the wiring in our brain and our metabolic processes. It is, after all, a stress hormone involved in the fight or flight response. But cortisol is not the bad guy. Excess stress is. In fact, without cortisol, we can only live for a number of hours or days. And adrenal insufficiency makes you very, very sick very, very quickly. Every well-functioning body has a natural cortisol circadian rhythm, and it supports our organs ready to start the day, helps us wake up, supports blood pressure, blood sugar, and metabolism. This natural rhythm I try to mimic with medication several times a day. And sickness bugs can put me in a critical state in hospital because of medication absorption. It also helps us to survive sudden shocks, injury, inflammation and infection when our bodies release it in larger quantities. And we release more of it when we're anxious, nervous or taken aback. It is possibly the most vital hormone to life hour by hour. So, although there is little I can do about life happening to me, and I cannot predict the unpredictable, I do have to prepare, prepare my body with increased medication if I know I have something stressful to cope with and carry emergency injections for current crisis. 
This morning, for instance, I'm quite nervous, and I've had to prepare for this. I will likely be incomprehensibly tired after it, and I will, never, uh, and I will need to be aware of any symptoms, or at least hope that others will notice if I make less sense than usual, <laughs> slur my words, or start to look peaky. If one thing has caused me to reassess unnecessary stress in my life, it is losing the physical ability to survive stress. It is nothing new that long-term stress is bad for our health, and many of us enter into practices that help us to better cope with this. Regular meditation, for instance, actually alters our stress response and reduces the body's demand for additional cortisol. But knowing that even the simplest of activities poses an instant threat is a huge wake-up call. I'm now trying to manage this alongside other complications, and I have really had to look at how I function in the world and where my unnecess unnecessary stress is coming from. It is difficult to reconcile being vigilant about my symptoms with needing to manage stress and learning to let go. I can see that suppressing emotions could cause damage and I've had to learn to say no and accept my limitations. My connection to people and strengthening friendship bonds has become profoundly important to me and it has made me double down on my values of honesty, fairness and appreciation for the goodness that I receive. I have a lot of privilege in my life. It does feel like it would be handy if life were like an episode of Columbo. <laughs> Seeing the solution before proceedings start, so I could prepare ahead. But I'm sure this would only be helpful if the ending were to my satisfaction. <laughs> it was the biggest test of all, therefore, when I was rushed into hospital last July with massive abdominal bleeds, not knowing that I wouldn't be home for another three months. It was 101 days trapped in the environment I felt, felt less, least adapted to. In and out of high dependency, having blood transfusions, morphine pumps, arterial lines, central lines, and an emergency test under general anaesthetic to tell me I needed a permanent ileostomy as soon as I was strong enough. The whole experience with every, everything I had feared and more Somehow I survived it, but I don't know how, and I don't think this has quite sunk in yet. Very quickly, I felt a hollowing loss of identity, referred to as bed 23, and a string of hospital numbers as the tray of morphine came round. You're not Jean Valjean, you're 24601. <laughs> I became institutionalised very rapidly, feeling like I couldn't survive outside this odd bubble, as if I, could, I wouldn't even be able to remember my name. Everything felt frightening, and I was starved of all those little pleasures I had so often failed to acknowledge. Having been deprived of a proper hug of more than three Mississippis, and the hit of oxytocin that comes with loving human contact for all, for all that time, I now consciously cherish those moments of intimacy more than ever before. As brilliant as the NHS is, and it is a godsend, it has a lot of work to do on helping inpatients retain a sense of personal identity, purpose, and a knowing that their anxieties are understood. 
Anxiety is too often dismissed as the reason you're experiencing so much physical discomfort, rather than an indication that you're suffering great pain. I watched in awe those patients who clearly had a lot of practice in self-care and soothing themselves in troubled times. I simply felt clueless and only wished I'd kept up with my mindful practices, gratitude diaries and morning pages more diligently. The only thing I could think to do was to stick photos of the people and moments I treasured most on my cupboard door. But even these were considered an infection risk. Still, I hung on to these little picture windows for dear life, and I could now see why I, I had always been obsessed with taking photographs. And as you'll see, there's photos here that you can have a look at when you leave if you want. Um, they were my way of being in the moment. You have to stop and stare to take a photo. Cue the light bulb moment. <laughs> Adapting to life on the outside was tough as I became familiar with my changing body and life with the stigma of a stoma. Even finding out I was pregnant, a complete shock having gone through the grieving process of thinking this was not possible, came with a feeling of uncertainty and despair that I couldn't manage. Amidst the added fog of chronic fatigue syndrome and fibro pain, I wasn't very kind to myself. My achievement and threat systems have received no end of attention, so now it's the turn of my brain's soothing system to get a bit of alone time with me and my simple joys. And if you turn to the back of your um, order of service, those sort of emotional regulation systems are explained in more detail. <laughs> We need all of these in healthy balance. One of the loves of my life, my niece and goddaughter, Erica Catherine, took her first steps a couple of weeks ago. And if anyone was the picture of walking her path with joy, it was Erica in that moment. She was so proud. She didn't judge herself as bragging or showing off. She was simply loving it. Equally, she's not afraid to show us when she is grumpy, tired or hungry. And it's wonderful. I am being spurred on by my psychologist to re-engage with that sense of childlike wonder and play and perhaps even go through the teenage rebellion I lost to illness. So watch out. <laughs> As I contemplate motherhood, and longing to provide a healthy example of engaging with and expressing emotions, I find myself asking, what is joy and how do I experience it? Even now, little NanoCoin is expressing its own tastes in music, as if it knows more instinctively than I do how to express joy. It seems late on in the talk to be raising this, but I have been a late bloomer in this regard. <laughs> For me, I think it would be a sense of surrendering to the moment, a time of absolute non-judgment and pure contentment. Even now, Cody will say, this is your time to do what you want, enjoy yourself. And I will sim simply respond with, but what do you mean? If we are to spend the week talking about walking our paths with joy, it is important to ask whether we truly understand what that means for us. 
I asked a handful of people to write a short account of their relationships with joy and the answers were quite diverse. I found them fascinating. I wanted you to see them in full. So please take a moment to read these accounts floating around the congregation this morning and consider your own idea of joy and the small things for which you are grateful. For me, these simple pleasures might be the ability to eat, a good hug, the smell of cut grass, a sleepy afternoon watching Columbo, <laughs> and for now, just one more thing, singing. And here is your opportunity to lose yourself in the music. The moment you own it, never let it go. Words of Marshall Bruce Mathers, AKA Eminem. <laughs> I could not think of any better hymn to wind down with before my closing reflections than Brief Our Days But Long For Singing, to the tune of J.S. Bach's Jesu Joy Of Man's Desiring, which is number two in the green hymn book. If you wish to break into parts, then please do. <laughs> Number two in the green book. Oh, you might have to share. <laughs> <laughs>
before we move on to the next stage of our day, I wish to offer a few short reflections on what I have learned and where I see myself now. I am still very much in the process of making myself vulnerable to joy and exercising self-care. None of this feels automatic yet. I am having to remind myself to stand still for a while just to appreciate what is without judgment. My experiences with physical and mental health have taught me a lot and I believe a great many positives have come from this. It is not like that cliche of everything suddenly smelling sweeter, the whole world looking brighter and every moment being filled with joy overflowing I thought I should feel, but I do at least recognise the value in doing something simply because it is worth doing. I do not need a certificate for everything. <laughs> I am conscious of the importance of my connection to other people and I'm more acutely aware of pain we cannot see, suffering below the skin. Joy does not come easily to all of us and it can often feel like a position from which you can fall. It can feel risky. But no two people can have the same experience of anything. Emotions pass over a backdrop of billions of unique experiences, genetic codes and neurological networks. Our paths are individual to us and us alone. We are each a single puzzle piece in a hugely complex and diverse jigsaw and it's okay to be at peace with our weaknesses and dare I say it, failures. We can allow ourselves to be held by loved ones and to be bolstered by the strength in others. We each deserve this. We, can, we cannot feel any one emotion all of the time, but we can recognise that there are momentary joys there for the taking on even the most difficult of days. Joy and sorrow can walk hand in hand. <coughs> I'd like to close with a recording of Paul McCartney's We All Stand Together, which was the first record I owned and wore the, gro the grooves from. <coughs> I can't help but smile when I hear it, and it feels like an appropriate anthem for the warmth and unity of summer school. As you leave, think of the world with its flowers and its paintings and its miracles of science. Find your Columbo and simply saunter up the path, not caring whether you reach the top. Thank you.